been moving through uh, the book of 1 Samuel uh, for quite some time, and we're coming towards the end of it. Uh, you may remember that at the beginning of the book, there is a woman named Hannah. Uh, she is barren and desperately wants a child. She prays earnestly for this child and promises to God that if God will give her that child, that she will give him back to him. She has a son. His name is Samuel. As soon as he's weaned, he gives her, he gives, she gives her son back to the Lord um, that he might serve the Lord with the priest Eli. It turns out that her son Samuel is the first one in Israel to hear the voice of the Lord in quite some time. He has ears to hear God's word in a way that even the priest does not. And Samuel follows after God faithfully and leads the Israelites back to a place of faithfulness in the sight of the Lord. But the Israelites are unsatisfied with Samuel's leadership. They want more. They want a king. And so they ask for a king. And Samuel goes to God and says they're asking for a king. And God says, it's not going to go very well for them, but give them a king anyway. And so Samuel warns them thoroughly that it's not going to be all uh, roses for them to have a king. Um, but he gives them one. And he anoints Saul to be king. Saul is selected by the Lord. And Samuel anoints him and places him as king. Things go well. For a little while, Saul looks like he's a really strong leader. He's going to be able to deliver the Israelites from their enemies, the, um, the Philistines and others. And so things are going fairly well. But over time, Saul stops listening to the Lord and starts relying on his own strength and his own wisdom and his own strategy. So he does a couple of things that pull him away from the Lord. And Samuel has to go back to Saul and say that you've given up your throne. Your unfaithfulness has led the Lord to take the throne from you and give it to someone else. And then while Saul is still king, Samuel anoints David to be king. And David and Saul are actually inhabiting the same space. Saul is still on the throne. He's still technically the king of Israel. And David is playing the harp for him, trying to calm him down when he has fits of rage. David is fighting battles for him. And more and more, Saul grows envious of what David is and what he's becoming as David grows in esteem in the eyes of all of the Israelites. So Saul begins to try to kill David every way he can. And for quite some time, David has been on the run, escaping Saul one time after another in all different sorts of ways, discerning with the Lord where he is to go and what he is to do. David has been a person of deep prayer, and Saul has continued to be a person relying on his own strategy and relying on his own strength. So it brings us to where we are today in chapter 27. We won't read uh, all of this, but I will uh, recount some of it to you, and maybe hearing it from me and hearing it uh, from Chris will help, help it sing in. I encourage you to read it for yourself this week. Uh, it's a compelling and uh, really intriguing story. So at the beginning of chapter 27, David is exhausted. He's been running from Saul. He's been not killing Saul for a long time, even though the Lord has given him opportunities. David has not wanted to take that blood guilt on himself. So finally he says, if I stay here any longer, Saul is going to kill me. And so he, he heads back to Gath. Uh, to King Achish. King Achish, you may remember, is the, the king of the area where David pretended to be mad before that he could survive. But this time David doesn't pretend to be crazy. This time he goes to the king and he says, I want to live here with my men. And the king says, well, you can stay. And David does something that's pretty cunning. He says, I don't want to stay here in the main town with you. Just let me live somewhere on the outskirts of town where we won't really be in the way. 
And that lets David lead his men, uh, and it lets David report back to the king about what's happening. So David is leading all kinds of little um, military skirmishes and, and journeys into other places, and he's, he's winning victories, and he's bringing the spoils back to the king. And he's telling the king that they're coming from all over the place, including Israel. But David isn't actually attacking Israel. He's attacking other enemies of Israel, and he's weakening them even as he's living outside of Israel. So as David does this, the king begins to trust David more and more. Um, and uh, and David is still continuing to grow in his power. So that, that takes us through uh, 27 and in uh, to 28, where King Achish actually makes David his bodyguard. David has moved his way into such trust with the king that he wants David to be his personal bodyguard. And then we get a little bit of a very interesting story that we're going to talk about tonight. We don't even have time to deal with it this morning, but you should come back tonight because the next part of the story, um, Saul is so frustrated with not being able to hear the word of the Lord that he goes and he consults a medium. He goes and finds a woman who can supposedly summon people back from the dead so that he can ask Samuel, who's now died, what it is he's supposed to do. And Samuel isn't very kind to him when he's summoned from the dead. So we'll talk about that tonight. That's your teaser for tonight. Um, and in chapter 29, the king is finally ready to go to battle. King Achish is ready to, to go to battle, and so he calls all of his generals, including David, to go to battle with him. But none of his other generals trust David. They say, when we get into the battle, David's going to turn on us. He's going to join the Israelites. He's not going to fully abandon his people. And he's going to attack us from the inside. And so the king is very disappointed, but he has to go to David and say, you can't fight with us. And so he sends David and his men home back to Ziklag where they've been living. And when they get home, they find a terrible sight. The whole town has been burned to the ground. Like, like Sherman marched through and just burned all of it, that's what it looks like. And all of their livestock, all of their women and their children have been taken. And so the men stop right there, and they weep until they're exhausted. 600 men realize that their, their homes are gone, their women and their, their wives and their children are gone, and they weep. They want to do something about it. So David, as he does, consults his priest. He says, what is it that we should do? And he answered, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, he and the 600 men who were with him. They came to the Wadi Besor, where they stayed, where those stayed who were left behind. But David went on with the pursuit, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind, too exhausted to cross the river. I'm in verse 11 now of chapter 30. In the open country they found an Egyptian and brought him to David. They gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. They also gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins. When he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. Then David said to him, To whom do you belong? Where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. My master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. 
We had made a raid on the Negev of the Carathites, and on that which belongs to Judah and on the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag down. David said to him, Will you take me down to this raiding party? He said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me, or hand me over to my master, and I will take you down to them. When he had taken them down, they were spread out all over the ground, eating and drinking and dancing, because of the great amount of spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not one of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back everything. David also captured all the flocks and herds which were driven ahead of the other cattle. People said, this is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who'd been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the river. They went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. When David drew near to the people, he saluted them. Then all the corrupt and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may take his wife and children and leave. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and handed over to us the raiding party that attacked us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For the share of the one who goes down into the battle shall be the same as the share of the one who stays by the baggage. They shall all share alike. From that day forward, he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel. It continues to the present day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoils of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel and Ramoth of the Negev and Jatir and Aroer and Sifmoth and Eshtimoah and Rechal and the towns of, of Jeremaelites and the towns of the Kenites and Horma and Borash and Athak and, he, and Hebron and the places where David and his men had roamed. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts find acceptance in your sight, Almighty Father, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I didn't hate group work in school as much as some people did, but it was still really frustrating for almost everyone involved. Those of you who are teachers know that your students get frustrated by this, and those of you who remember your time in school remember what it's like. There's often or always someone who the others in the group think isn't pulling their weight. There's always someone who never thought that the other person's work was good enough to their standards. And there were some who were so exhausted by all of those dynamics that they'd just sneak back into a corner to escape. Some to do something else entirely, maybe nothing related to the work, and others simply to start on the work that everybody else was arguing about. Maybe this doesn't always happen, but it seems to often be the case. It's one of the primary lessons of group work beyond what we're actually trying to accomplish in the direct assignment. David's men find themselves in the midst of pretty difficult group work. You see, they went to battle, they had gotten themselves geared up to fight with the king, and then they get rejected. They've marched all the way there to the battle, and now they have to march all the way back and then when they get back, they come to find everything that they own gone 
or destroyed. Everything. And not just the things that they own, but their families too. All of it's gone. There's nothing but ashes where they once lived. Nobody to console them. Just these men who've come back from a battle that they were rejected from to find everything gone. And so they weep. They weep until they're exhausted, until they can't weep no more, until there are no more tears to cry and no more strength to offer as they cry. And then David has to go asking the Lord what it is that they should do. So he inquires of the priest, he asks the priest what they should do, and the priest tells them that they should go, that they can catch up with the men who did this to their town, that they can get everything back, that they can redeem every bit of it, and that they should go. And so they take off. Even though they've already traveled a long way home, they go. And there's something about moving the goal line that's particularly exhausting. As some of you have experienced this in your own stations, I have, I've told you in the course of caring for you my own story of being in college and being sick. And uh, as I was getting better, I decided to run a 5K. Um, and before I'd gotten sick, I, I was running a lot and was doing okay, and uh, I decided I could do this. And so the first two miles, I, I did okay, and then I started slowing down a little bit. And I was a junior, and there was this freshman girl who came up behind me, and she, she passed me. And I was like, well, she's not going to beat me. I'm not going to let that happen. And so I stayed kind of within distance to catch up to her. And um, then I saw the cross-country coach. The cross-country team was the one putting on the race. And I saw him standing at a gate clapping. And I was like, well, there's the finish line. It's time for me to, to go and win. And so I did. I took off running as fast as I could. And I passed her right as I crossed the gate. And I doubled over exhausted. And the cross-country coach said, no, no, no. The finish line is 100 yards that way. And I said, well, not for me. It's, it's done. I'm finished. I didn't have anything left to give. And so I, she beat me. I, I, I was two minutes behind her or something at that point. But this is what happens when we, when we move the goal line, when we think we know what the finishing point is, and then it gets moved past us. These guys thought they had a long march home, and then they get home, and everything is much longer than they expected. They're already exhausted, and then they have to grieve, and then before they're finished grieving, they have to get up and go a little bit further. When you think you're through, and then it's a bit further, that's the hardest part of the journey. So after they're marching and they're weeping, they take up chase, chasing after these men who have a huge head start on them. And then they get to this river, and for some of them, it's just too much. They just don't have the energy that it's going to take to cross the river. So a third of the men, 200 of the 600 men, decide to stay. They say, we just don't have it in us to go any further. And so they stay with the baggage. They stay behind with all of the stuff that the army has been carrying, literally with everything that these men own. You see, if everything that they had at home is gone, what they were carrying with them is all that they have left. So if they stay then the other men who go forward are traveling lighter. They can move more quickly and they can catch up to this group that's ahead of them. So they stay and they protect the baggage, but they mostly stay because they're too tired to go on. And all of them are blaming David. You see, they're so mad that David tried to take them to battle and then failed and brought them home to a town that was destroyed. They wanted to stone David. They feel like all of this is David's fault. So David's in a pretty tough situation. 
He has men who are mad at him, who want to stone him. He has men who are exhausted, yet he has to go and catch up with everybody. So as the 200 men stay behind, the others go forward and they find an Egyptian. A man who's terribly ill. He hasn't eaten or drunk anything in three days. And he himself has been left behind. He's been left behind by the group who went before. They abandoned him because he was sick and he was no longer worth the resources it was going to take to keep him alive. So they just left him there in the middle of the wilderness to die. And this man, once he's been fed, once he gets some water, once he starts feeling better, agrees to help David and his men. He says, if you'll protect me, if you won't kill me, then I'll lead you to the people who abandoned me. And David, we find, is not going to be the sort of king who forgets and leaves behind those who others find to be worthless. David's not going to let Israel be that kind of nation. So as they move on and they catch up to the people that they're chasing, as they utterly destroy them in a 24-hour battle, only a few men escape on camels. As they do this, David recognizes what sort of people he's fighting. And he recognizes that he doesn't want to be that sort of leader. So he and his men win the battle. They take back everything that was taken from them and more. They take back all the things that were taken from their homes, their women and their children and everything else, and then they take all the herds and flocks from this group that's been going around and stealing from everybody. And as they make their way back, across the river as they join back with the men who waited behind. The men who went to fight, some of them say, well, they shouldn't enjoy any of the spoils of our battle. They didn't help us fight it. And David will hear nothing of this. The men who go down into the battle, he says, will receive the same share as the men who stay behind. They gave everything that they had. When they made it to the river, they didn't have any more to give. And all of us are going to share together. This should remind us of Jesus' words. That his yoke is easy and that his burden is light. That to all who are weary and heavy laden, that we can come to him and receive our rest. You see, in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Israel, as David establishes it, if you, if you notice, when David does this, it says that David established that day a command for all of Israel. He's not even living in Israel. He certainly isn't recognized as the king of Israel right now, but he, he establishes a command that all should share in the resources. So in the kingdom of God, as we see it in David and as we see it even more clearly in Jesus... The lost and the laughed at, the mocked and the forgotten, the ones who are a drain on the resources, the ones who are exhausted from work or from grieving and can't take another step, those deserve the same share as those who go into battle. These are the ones who belong in the kingdom of God. And this is good news for all of us. It's good news for those of us who feel like we're the ones who've been left out and left behind, who don't have the strength to take another step. And it's good news for those of us who feel that we can go a bit further, that we can join in the mission of Jesus and offer what it is that we have for the good of the whole community, for the good of the people of God. One of the things that is the most compelling image at funerals for me 
is actually something that many of you probably don't think about. It's the journey to the graveside service. The journey from wherever the funeral happens to the last resting place of the one who's passed. It's a compelling picture for me because when we ourselves can't go a step further, when we have breathed our last, the church, the community of God, the people of God carries us to where we need to be, that we may wait for the coming of the Lord. This is who we are as a church. When we can't go any further, when we can't do any more, others come around us and support us and let us share in the life that all of us have found in God. You see, this is not about laziness. It's about the life together that we actually have to live, that sometimes is exhausting, that sometimes is full of grief, that sometimes makes us feel that we can't go a bit further. There's always this temptation to keep the Lord's blessings for ourselves, to think that we ourselves have earned it, that we ourselves have done it, that we've done it of our own strength, of our own power, of our own scheming and strategy. But this is never true. This is the lie that Saul believes, and it's the lie that David refuses to believe. It's the lie that David refuses to let his people live into. There's a temptation of those of us who have a lot to give to leave behind those who think that we think might be a drain. And there's a temptation for those of us who don't have a bit more to give to be bitter about our own lack of strength to be bitter that we don't have more to give, and then because of that to reject the, the offers of gifts that come our way. Neither of these things allow us to abide in the kingdom which God is preparing for us, one in which we all may share, one in which we all may abide in the fullness of the blessing of God. Let's pray. Lord, we know that none of us are worthy of your blessing, that none of us can do enough to earn it. But we thank you for it all the same. And we pray that as we find you generous with us, we would be generous with others. That as we offer our burdens for you to carry, you whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light, that we might do the same for others. That we might walk this journey of life together in the midst of our grief in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our exhaustion, in the midst of our alienation and rejection from other people, that in this community of faith we might find love and acceptance and provision, that we might join together in your name and in your grace as we offer it to one another and as we are bound together in the unity of your spirit, which is love. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.